Father God, we uh, come to you right now. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, church body that we have. And we ask that uh, the time that we spend here will be pleasing to you, that uh, it will be a form of worship, and that uh, you would be gratified and that uh, you would be blessed. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last time Tim asked me to fill in for him, he gave me four days' notice, and um, it's because of COVID, so I couldn't fault him. This time he actually gave me several weeks, but because we wouldn't know how far we'd get, and then we spoke uh, last week about the transgender issue, was kind of trying to gauge where we'd be. And the reality is, I knew we would be about at the favorite place in 1 Peter that I love, 1 Peter 3, verses 13, 14, 15. Problem is, and I got to be honest, uh, I was being selfish. I thought, I don't want to hear myself talk about that. I want to hear what Tim has to say about that. And so uh, I was talking to Tim, and I had mentioned that I'd been putting together like a little pamphlet, a little uh, study guide on uh, the fundamentals of Bible study, and specifically, I call it the ABCs of Bible study. The reality is, as many of you in this room have been studying God's Word for decades and probably could or maybe even should be up here teaching it. And to those individuals, I'll look to you to have some input and ideas and, and maybe uh, um, other thoughts about what we're talking about. Um, and then for those who haven't been studying as long, then hopefully there'll be something of value. My hope is that everybody will walk away with at least one thing that they can take with them to uh, enhance God's, uh, their studying of God's Word. So uh, it sounds kind of simplistic. I'm hoping it's not simplistic, but the ABCs, we're going to start with it. The uh, A stands for attitude. How we approach God's Word is so critical, the mindset that we have in advance. And then the next is the Bible itself. The B is the Bible. And then C, and actually I put C's plural, so it goes with ABCs, is uh, some tools cross-references, concordances, and commentaries. And many of you have probably used all of these, but I think there's some things out there that might be of value. So when we talk about attitude, what's your attitude when you approach the Bible? Do you kind of look at it as a, a chore, like, oh, it's work, I got to do it? Or do you look at it as a form of worship? Do you consider it a duty or actually an act of devotion? And do you look at it as a job or a joy to do? I think here in America, especially in, here in Roanoke, uh, we forget just how blessed we are to have God's Word so readily available in so many translations. And, and yet there's people in this world who've never even heard of God's Word, let alone have a copy of it. So uh, I, I just can't believe that we have such availability um, so I sincerely believe that your attitude actually will have uh, influence um, the benefits that you gain when you actually approach God's Word. I can remember many times taking, reading the Bible through a year, and you'd have the checkbox, and you'd say, okay, I need to read this many, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, check, got it, check. And that's not bad because that starts to formulate a pattern and a habit, and that's often the first step. But you want to have that anticipation and that attitude of, of what it is you're really doing is spending time with God's Word. Uh, Tim has said it many times uh, that um, there are treasures to be had and you can find them. The Bible is, in fact, a spiritual uh, gold mine. 
And I'd say, yes, you can have these, you can find them, but I, I would put the caveat if you have the right attitude and you have the right tools. So I'm wondering if there's in, anybody want to share or have any ideas of, of um, processes or techniques that they've developed over the years that they find um, that helps them with the, having the proper mindset or the right attitude when they read God's Word. Any, anybody have any ideas? Yes, Lily. I'm sorry? Right? Get through the Bible in a whole year? It's really rough when you get to first cry. Yeah, some of those in numbers can be a challenge too. Lily? Whenever we read the Bible, just whether it's individually or as a family, we always pray that God would bless the word to our hearts and guide us in understanding it. For those who may not have heard, she said that approach it with, a, with prayer in advance, asking God to guide. Uh, I think there was another hand over here. Yeah, um, something that helps my attitude, because even when you want to have a run attitude going to sit down, <clears throat> sometimes you don't, it's because of life around you. And to try, I just start trying to think of the attributes and the person of God and the different things and saying them, you know, and then thanking him for those things, and that tends to change my attitude. Oh, good. It's ready to receive. Applying God's attributes to the process of reading his word. Get my focus off around me. He is. Helps with the focus. Okay. I, the, the, the next slide here I'm going to show is, is something that I've practiced and came up with not too long ago. It's, I, I like alliteration or I like sometimes using the same letters, but I call it a cycle of seven or progression of P's. And in your handout there, you'll see the, the long list. And it's interesting. The first one, Lily, um, is in fact pray. I, I think it's important that before you begin reading God's Word, you ask His uh, his guidance, that he would show you what it is, you know, through the Holy Spirit, what it is that he wants you to hear and, and, uh, and understand. The next is to actually approach the passage. Read it. I think, I think it's important to read it. Read it slowly in the right environment, and then to read it if possible, and maybe more than one translation. I'm a huge fan of, of uh, reading it in multiple translations, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. After you've read it, ponder it. Um, meditate on it. There's, uh, Don Whitney wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines, and he says, read large, um, meditate small. And what he says in there is that you may read a whole uh, chapter or multiple chapters, but there may be just one verse or one little segment that really has captured uh, your, uh, what God is trying to tell you and to really focus on that part. After you've pondered it, then practicalize it. And I don't know if that's a word, if there's any wordsmiths out there, or you can correct me, but when I say practicalize it, we have to remember that uh, this, the, the Bible in its entirety was written at the, you know, at least 2,000 years ago, and we're talking about the New Testament, and even further back for the Old Testament. And it was written by individuals who were addressing specific people at a specific time who were facing specific situations. But the beauty of the Bible is it's God's Word, it's living, it's active, and it speaks to us today. And so the ability then to take 
what was written then, and God speaks to us today to practicalize it into um, how we're living. And then the next is to personalize it. It's kind of that next sequence of, okay, what is God telling me personally? How is this impacting me and my life and what I'm doing today? And the, the next is to preserve it, um, to write down what it is you've heard. My wife, is, uh, she's been keeping prayer journals that are tied to her reading of Scripture for many years, and every once in a while she'll pull one out and recount what God has done either in a specific situation or just in the growth of how things have changed over the years and decades. And preserving it's a great, a great uh, tool. And then to complete the cycle is to pray again. Take those captured thoughts, those things that God has shown you, and pray it back to Him. And so it's kind of a cycle. Start with prayer, go through the process, and, and we end with prayer. I want to point out three uh, individuals that I think give good examples that can have, uh, show the influence of our attitude. And uh, they all just, all three just happen to start with Jay. That was, that was purely coincidental. Uh, the first one's Joshua. So set the scene, Joshua and the people of Israel, they've come across the Jordan, they've gotten into the promised land, Jericho falls, they uh, go for their second battle, and things go a bit awry because there was an individual who did not obey God, was disobedient. And Joshua's kind of beside himself, like, what happened? God, you're bringing us here, and we're already losing. And God explains them the situation. They find the, the person who was responsible, and they go out with their second battle at AI, and they are victorious. And at that point, Joshua brings the whole people together, the whole assembly half on one side of the Ark of the Covenant, half on the other side, and it says that he reads the law, reads God's word to them. And I was thinking, well, it, he couldn't read the whole Bible because Joshua hasn't even been written yet because he's in the midst of it. So we're talking the law, the Old Testament of the Torah, of whatever Moses at that point had passed on to him. And he's, it says he reads them. And I think what it does is he, show, he reads it to remind them of their identity, to remind them who they are, and to renew their covenant. It says right in there that it was to renew their covenant. So read it to remind and renew. The next individual is Josiah. Josiah was the, that young uh, king. I think he took the throne when he was eight years old. And uh, about 18 years later, they're cleaning out the temple, and some of the priests come, up, uh, they come upon a copy of God's, uh, of the, of the, the law. And they were supposed to be reading it regularly. I think there was even a requirement. They were supposed to bring everyone together every seven years and read it as an assembly. And obviously, they hadn't been doing that. And so Josiah, it's read to him. And what does he do? He responds. He responds by tearing his clothes and he repents. And God says, because you were humble and um, you repented, you'll be blessed. So there's the reading it, responding, and then repenting. And then, of course, the last J, um, I couldn't pass up using Jesus as an example. He didn't read it. Here we have the living word, God incarnate, walking along with a couple of disciples, and he recounts to them, starting with Moses and the prophets and taking them all the way through and explaining to them, recounting to them how it is that this applied to him. If there was ever one conversation, there's probably a few conversations I would love to have been a, a fly on the wall or just hear the, the road to Emmaus, what Jesus is doing this to those two disciples, 
would have just been one that I would love to capture and, and to have heard. And the, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. We've had some of their videos up here before, um, Tim Mackey and John uh, Collins. And they, um, their theme mission statement, if you will, is they say, the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. That's, they, they begin and end almost every show with that. And to me, the road to Emmaus is kind of what Jesus was demonstrating when he tells them, hey, it's all about me, and the Bible is that way. So that's kind of the attitude part. Let's uh, jump now to the B, the Bible. Um, I want to say it's yours. It's, uh, I think you should make it a prized possession. Uh, I can remember as a child, probably I was seven years old in, in Southern California, and I lived in a neighborhood, and we'd always be in each other's houses, and I remember going to one of the neighbor's house, and they had this huge, and when I say huge, it was maybe a foot and a half by two and a half feet by eight inches thick, big white family Bible sitting on the coffee table. And I said, how do you take that to church? And he kind of looked at me like, well, I don't take that to church. That's the family Bible. It stays on the coffee table. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a family Bible on your coffee table. What I'm saying is that should not be your study Bible. You need to have your own copy that is yours. And if it's yours, then I think it's okay to write in it. I, I can remember as a kid sometimes thinking, oh, I can't write in God's Word. This is, it says Holy Bible on there. I don't want to write in it. But I've, I've come now to the point where I write a lot in my Bible. We meet uh, Tuesday mornings in this room, in fact, with Tim. Um, and we've been going through Romans. Uh, we're just starting Romans 12. So if you know the process where we've, we've gone and what we're covering you can't help but write things down. It's just an amazing, uh, t and it's available. If I, this is the study Bible I carry with me. It's kind of big and bulky, but because it's a study Bible, it's got a lot of information in there, and I write a lot of stuff in there, and it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to have your own copy of it. So be besides it being your own, I think it's so important to read it daily. Um, getting back into that habit, make it something you do so you don't even think about it. It's just something that you do because it's become part of you and part of how you live your life. The um, ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, which we, uh, Church of the Holy Spirit belongs to, back in 2013, they started drafting what they called an Anglican catechism. They called it to be a Christian. And I had another copy that was their draft. Their draft form lasted for about seven years because they wanted to get everything just right. The draft form, it, it was like, almost like leather and had a gold side and big fonts. I kind of liked it. But last year, they came out with the approved final version. Hardback, you can buy it on Amazon or probably on the ACNA website. But I think this is a great tool. It can be very helpful if you're thinking about bringing somebody to Alpha. This is almost like Alpha in a hand um, because all good catechisms are a Q&A, a question a question that seems maybe very obvious, but they give an answer, and every one of their answers in here is backed up by Scripture. So this is a great, great tool to have. And in this, um, it's called To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism. Uh, I don't remember what it costs, but it, it's a little hardback, and it's worth the investment. But question 227 says, how should the Holy Scriptures shape your daily life? And see the word daily there. 
I should hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by the sustaining power of God's word, I may grow in grace and hold fast to the hope given to me in Christ Jesus. So I think it should be read daily. Unfortunately, um, most Americans don't read it daily. I know how this chart looks on the, how easy it is to read. That's not too bad. So I really, the the bottom lines we're not going to really talk a lot about. There's only two lines I want to focus on, that top red line. The American Bible Society does a survey every year, and they call it the state of the Bible. And when they first did it, there was about 64 million Americans who answered the question, how often do you read the Bible? And their answer was never. And uh, the last couple of years, that, that number is now getting uh, close to 90 million who say never. That, that I found to be, I, I don't live in a bubble, but I thought never. Here we are in a Christian country and nearly 90 million people don't read the Bible at all. The light blue line I thought was also rather interesting. That's the uh, list of people who answered, how often do you read it? And the answer was daily. And when they started the survey, it was about 28 million. And it got up to almost 41 million. And as you can see, the last couple of years, there's been a significant drop to the point where it's only 23 million last year. And they did some digging into that, and there was a direct correlation to COVID because they found that people answered that how often you read the Bible is directly related to whether you're attending church. And it doesn't mean they would only read the Bible in church, but if they're attending church regularly, there's a tendency then to read the Bible more regularly. But to see such a drop-off, I mean, living in a world of COVID, I think there'd be more people that want to read their Bible more daily, but uh, more often. But um, I thought that was kind of a telling thing. Um, let's talk about the sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. Uh, the Bible itself says, and if we go to... Psalm 19. As you know, Psalm 119 is 170 verses. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it goes on through a whole list of the different things that talks about God's Word, the, the law of the Lord, uh, and, and gives different, eight different words for describing God's Word. But it's, Psalm 19 is almost an abbreviated version of it. And it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And uh, to be honest, as we were driving here this morning, I even asked my wife to check the Bible because the next couple verses, as a kid, I had memorized this song, and it's, I won't sing it to you, but... The song, and it's going to be the King James, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. And that just, I just mentioned that is if you have young children, get them to memorize even just a little bit of the Bible at, when they're in their youth, and it will stick with them. I, there's things I can remember, I'm not exaggerating, 55 years ago that I memorized, and I might not be able to memorize it today because the way my brain is now versus then, it's like a sponge. And if you can get your kids when they're young saturated in the Word, it, I'm looking over at my oldest daughter over there. She had a video. I shouldn't say this, Sarah, sorry. But um, 
She had a, a how old was Chase? He's five years old, and she's videotaping him reciting the uh, 23rd Psalm. And, it's, and he, he hits it spot on as a, as a five-year-old. And putting that in, you know, that word of, I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I think it's so important to memorize Scripture, especially when you're young, if you can, if you can do it. Um, also, when it comes to the sufficiency of, of the word, uh, the, Anglican, or the Church of England, when it was formed in the early 1500s, they wanted to come out with a list that really said, what is it we believe in? They call it the Articles of Religion. It started off with about 10, eventually got up to 42, and then the final version was 39. And so those 39 articles are what we still adhere to to this day. And article number six says, the sufficiency of Holy Scripture for salvation. It contains all things necessary for salvation. Consequently, whatever is not read in Scripture, nor can be proved from Scripture, cannot be demanded from any person to believe it as an article of, for the faith. Nor is any such thing to be thought necessary or required for salvation. So, if it's in there, it's important, and it, it's, it's what we need to believe in. If it's not in there, we can't hold somebody to it. And then, of course, there are those things that there's some gray areas. There's things that we will stand on a hill and die for because that's what God's Word says. There's some things that aren't, aren't in there. And for that, we have to say, okay, that's not a reason necessarily to go to fight over something. Stick to what's in God's Word, and, and uh, it is all sufficient. Let's talk a little bit about reliability. And, and this is kind of a busy chart, um, and I'm not going to go into great detail. And I, I came across this uh, online, a couple different versions, so I compiled it into this. But they talk about, this, the first one up there is Homer's Iliad, and it was written, he lived around 900 B.C. And they have about 1,800 copies of it, which is quite a few. And the, going from 900 B.C. when he wrote it, the earliest copy they have, that they have is... 500 years later. So the 500 years passed from the time he wrote it till they have their first copy. That makes sense. Uh, Plato and Aristotle, same thing as, as they lived in three and four hundreds BC, but their copies, the earliest copy they have is 1300 or 1400 years that has passed. And some of the numbers of the copies you can see are only like 31 copies or 40 or maybe just 100. And if you look and see how the New Testament stacks up against that, it was written basically from around 50 A.D. to about 100 A.D., so during that 50-year period. And we have portions of the New Testament that are dated around 100 to 150, so we're just talking decades after the events. Um, the entire New Testament, we have a copy that's about 300 A.D. But not only do we have the actual manuscripts, we have 5,838 Greek manuscripts and 18,000-plus translations, meaning that they have the Greek New Testament, and then it was translated in all the other languages at the time, and we have copies of those. And then we have quotes from some of the early church fathers and sometimes from even just antagonist agnostics who will quote the, what they've got in the Bible, and some of these are 300 A.D., so we're talking just a couple hundred years in some cases afterwards. And the only reason I just use that comparison when people say, well, that was written so long ago, we don't know what it says. If you compare the New Testament to all the other types of writings that were going on about that time or a little bit before, it's pretty amazing. 
Let's talk about literary style real quick. Um, this is a slide captured a screenshot from a video done by the Bible Project. And um, Tim Mackey says that the Bible's basically comprised of three types. We've got discourse, which are speeches, essays, letters. Um, it's kind of that sequence of ideas that have a linear thought that lead to a logical conclusion. Uh, there's poetry, and we all know poems and songs. It's that creative language that helps us to think about things we might not otherwise be able to. And then the narrative, and narratives are stories. Uh, our brains are, science has shown that our brains are hardwires to hear stories, to relate to them, to respond to them, to remember them. So if I was to ask which one of these three do you think the largest percentage of the Bible, which one of these three styles, what's the, probably the most prevalent one? Narrative. Narrative is right. The uh, discourse is about a little less than a quarter, 24%. The uh, poetry is about a third, 33%. And narrative is 43%. And that's because God knows how we are made. He knows everything about us and knows that because we can relate to stories, that's one of the reasons why that's the largest percentage. Uh, this next quote I'm going to read, I'm going to have it on the screen. It's a little lengthy, but I thought it might be easy to follow along. And it's written by N.T. Wright. And I think he really captures, he wrote an article on um, Scripture and the authority of God. And he talks about the, uh, the, the reason why we have it in so many stories. He says, that, I believe, is one of the reasons why God has given us so much story, so much narrative in Scripture. Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at, at people's heads or offer them a list of doctrines, and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview, or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview they were in already. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. If that happens as a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? I thought that was really quite compelling. Uh, let's talk a little bit about translations. Um, one of the questions you always hear is, what's the best translation? And the answer always is, well, it's the translation you use. Uh, Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, he says the best translation is when you translate it into your life. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, anybody want to guess about how many English translations there are? Uh, they, they said right now there's about 50 English translations in circulation. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And you might ask, well, uh, why are there so many? And I actually, I'm trying to think, well, why are there so many? And, and a series of questions that I think kind of might show that is what language did Jesus and his disciples speak day in and day out as they're sitting around the campfire? What language? Aramaic. 
Aramaic. So they're speaking in Aramaic, but they're living in a Jewish religious sitting where the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And uh, then the Bible is, or the New Testament in particular, is translated into? So we have these conversations, discussions in Aramaic, living in a world of Hebrew context, being translated into Greek, and then we get it into English. And I thought, well, how often have you ever been sitting at your computer and you send an email to a friend or a relative or a business associate and hit the send button and in almost no time they're coming back like, what are you talking about? Or they've either read between the lines, they're seeing something or reading something that you never meant to say at all. And we're talking about somebody thinking and writing in English, sending it in seconds in English, they're reading it in English, and there's still the chance for something to get lost in translation. And so when we talk about all the differences in, in translations, I'm going to show up a, a screen here. It's called the translation spectrum. This is actually, it's on your hand out there. I was hoping, it, I thought this might be kind of hard to read, but I figured if I put it on there, it might help. I want to say two things right off the bat. This is not the scale. That doesn't mean that if there's a distance between each dot this much, then it means that's the amount of where it fits on the spectrum. It's more to show how it flows on it. The other thing is, is this doesn't mean that Bible translations on one end are any better, per se, than ones on the other uh, end of the spectrum, as long as you understand what the philosophy is behind them. And there's basically three different philosophies. The uh, word-for-word is uh, sometimes referred to as the formal equivalence. Uh, you might hear it as literal translations. Thought-for-thought thought is the dynamic equivalence. And then paraphrase is just that, somebody paraphrasing it. They like to sometimes call it the functional equivalence. Um, on the far left of the uh, spectrum there, you can see uh, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, the ESV, which up until uh, COVID, we had it in our pews as our pew Bibles. And uh, then it goes to the King James, New King James. Those are usually considered to be the more literal uh, uh, the, translations that are trying to capture the word for word, but even that requires translations because languages are like that. And if you look right about in the middle, you got the uh, NIV, that's the one that Tim uses in the class, the one that he teaches from. I, I often use the New American Standard because I'm about 12 years older than Tim, and that was the Bible when I was growing up. Tim um, was using the uh, NIV. He still uses the 1984 version of the NIV. And then as you get further out to the right, you get into the Living Bible. I still have my green padded copy of the Living Bible. That uh, It was just something I had and I still have it. Uh, far right, you see the message. Eugene Peterson wrote uh, the message. The ones on the far right, you have to remember that this is not a literal or even thought for thought. It's paraphrasing. It's somebody trying to capture what it means. And I think there's a value in that from a devotional standpoint, especially. It, it might, you might relate and think, I never thought of it that way. And it could be a, a great devotional tool. But if you're going to study God's Word, I think you need to be more in the center to the left. Um, one translation that is, just came out in uh, 2017, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, Holman uh, published a Bible uh, called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And then they said, you know what, we can do this a little better. 
and so they came out in 2017 with the CSB. What it's basically done is tried to capture in the, the, the upper part, the language, very close to the NIV, but they give the literal translations down below in many cases so that you're getting almost the best of both words, worlds as you're going along. You're going, oh, okay, and then what does that mean? And they'll say, well, this literally says this. And sometimes it might be a saying that was very common back, you know, for an Aramaic speaker 2,000 years ago. The example I always use is if you were to say it's raining cats and dogs, everybody in the room here would know that there's, it's coming down hard. The rain is really coming down, but nobody's going to expect to see uh, you know, critters falling out of the sky. So we say things sometimes that we know what it means, but maybe a couple thousand years later, what are you talking about? And sometimes those things happen. Um, I, I like to use this next comparison for just, this next slide for a comparison of translations that it, it's meaningful to me. Um, this verse from Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So think about these things, that's kind of what I focused on in yellow. And the, uh, some of the other translations, like the uh, NIV says, think about such things, not much difference. Uh, the NLT says, think about things that are excellent, worthy of praise. New King James says, meditate on these things. Okay, meditate. And then the uh, New American Standard from 1977 that I grew up with says, let your mind dwell on these things. And to me, and every one of these are a proper, correct translation. The, the Greek word that is either think or uh, meditate or dwell is the Greek word legitsomai. And it's, there's about 41 times it's used in the New Testament. It's an accounting term. Paul uses a, a whole bunch in uh, Romans, especially in chapter 4, when he's talking about Abraham and that his faith was credited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. So when we say something is legitimai, it means it's fact. It's reality. If, if you say, I legitimai, I have $25 in my bank account, you're not guessing, you're not surmising, you don't have 23, you in fact, the reality is, have $25. And so to me, that, that extra nuance when it says, let your mind dwell, to me that almost seems like a more of a permanence type thing, that you're going to live in the reality that all these things that, that uh, Paul has just mentioned are what they are. And uh, I just thought that it's just kind of that little nuance there that's a good example that you can read different translations. Um, just a couple different things about types of Bibles. You know, there's study Bibles and devo devotional Bibles. And like, what's the difference? The study Bible, a good study Bible, is going to have those footnotes, the study guide below, cross-references, things like that. And it's going to help you to understand what the text is saying in the context of what it is saying. And then a good devotional Bible, it's usually going to have some questions that's going to help you to maybe start pondering about, well, how does that apply to me and, to, and how I'm living today? Both of these are, have great value. Um, I'll, I'll give a couple quick sh uh, screenshots of, uh, I don't know if that's too easy to see, but cross-references, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, down below... This is, where, this is the CSB that I mentioned, 
and they've got these say, well, it literally says, means, and then this is from the passage of 1 Peter uh, 3, that uh, talking about wives and husbands, and it goes into that, and then the study itself notes down below. Whereas if you look at a devotional Bible, and this happens to be the serendipity uh, st- uh, devotional Bible, there's no cross-references, there's no, no real notes at all. It's just got these questions there to get you thinking. And this one's actually a good one for a study group or a, a small group. And if you're trying to get some discussion or dialogue and get input, this is really what it's intended for. So we've uh, covered our A, attitude, B, Bible. Let's go into our C's real quick. Um, I mentioned the cross-reference before. I love using a cross-reference. It's one of my favorite tools because you might be reading along and you're thinking, there's another verse that uh, talks about this. And if it's a good cross-reference, it's going to give that notation. And you, you go to, the, you can see the little alpha letter and that ties into a word in whatever the verses you're going to. And it'll take you to, and sometimes it's a direct quote or it might be just an inference to it or it'll help you see other places. And I've used that almost as a devotional at times or to study, you find yourself going down this bunny trail, not a rabbit hole per se, but the bunny trail of like, oh, look at this and look how it ties into this. And it's a great little uh, way of going. It lets the Bible speak for itself. Concordances, I think every Bible probably that you have has a concordance in the back. It's just a alphabetical list of English words that tells you where you can find them in, in the Bible. Um, but despite the size of your Bible, as big as this thing is, it's, not, it's exhaustive to carry, but it's not exhaustive in its content. Exhaustive means it's got every word in the Bible. In 1890, James Strong uh, came out with a, what is now referred to as the Strong's Concordance. And he captured every Greek and Hebrew word at that time keeping in mind it was written in 1890, and a lot of manuscripts have been developed since then, and there's also some new numbering systems. But interestingly enough, a lot of people still, uses, still use Strong's numbers because it's become public domain and it's free to use, and a lot of other tools have been tied to it, and it's, that makes it of great value. This is kind of probably hard to see a little bit, but I just grabbed a picture of a word from there. I picked the word flower. My wife's a gardener, so I'm sure that had something to do with it. But you can see the reference on the left side, and it gives a short snippet of that verse. And then on the far right are those numbers. And the, the word flower, in effect, has five different Hebrew words and two different Greek words. And there's just those different nuances. And sometimes you'll be reading along and think, oh, I never quite saw it that way. I think concordances are another great tool to have in your uh, library. With the advent of the internet and apps available, most people are going to use that instead of carrying around their 20-pound Strong's uh, concordance. And then the next C, commentaries. And as the word sounds like, common, it's, it's, it's providing comments on it. Um, there's two main types. There's the kind that have focusing just on the individual books, and then there's the ones that focus on the entire Bible. Uh, Matthew Henry was one of the earlier in modern times. There's been commentaries going all the way back to the ancient church fathers, but uh, Matthew Henry wrote his from 1708 to 1710, and to this day, it's still great. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, every, uh, Wesley, they all used it and said, 
you should read it. I think it was Wesley that said I read it four times, and the fourth time I read it on my knees. He had that much admiration for it. So even something that's written. The important thing to remember, though, there's only one commentary that is inspired, and that is the Bible. These are all still works of men. Um, the, the Bible is always the first interpreter and the first commentary to refer to what does the Bible say about itself. That's always important to remember. Um, when you're trying to, if you're looking to buy a, a commentary, it's always important to know what the author believes. Um, in, in my mind, if they don't adhere to the uh, Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I start to go, well, wait a second, I need to dig a little deeper and see uh, what they believe. There was one commentary uh, that I had several copies of different books of the Bible. Come to find out that he doesn't believe in the de deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the virgin birth or virtually any miracles. Now, he may be a great scholar, um, and in fact probably was a great scholar. He died in 1974. But I, thought, ah, I don't know if I really want his commentaries on my bookshelf. I, I have a lack of space as it is. I want to have the best of the best out there. And one of the things that um, Tim's mentioned before is there's a website called bestcommentaries.com. And the people who put that together, they do a great job of filtering through and making sure the ones that are on there are actually some of the better ones available. They, they actually rank them. Like if you say, I want to know what the best commentaries on the book of Hebrews is. And you click on that and it'll start off, number one is William Lane's uh, word commentary on that. And there's a reason. They give you the criteria and the basis for where they come up with these numbers. I just found out recently that the numbering system is all based on the fact that D.A. Carson's commentary, the pillar commentary on the book of John, the Gospel of John, it got a 100, it got a 100 score. So they use that as the kind of the, all, by which all the other commentaries are judged. Douglas Moose, 98.6 on the book of Romans. And so there's this, this direct relation. And if you go and you're just saying, I, I really want to have a commentary on a particular book, this is a great tool to go to and look at. The um, other uh, websites that uh, you can go to, there's so much information on the Internet, especially when you start getting into uh, things about the Bible. And we have to be so careful. Um, some of the tools out there are so fascinating and amazing. It's just, um, I, everyone that's listed here, and I think I put them on your handout, those are all free, and those are all quality. I personally love to use the uh, Blue Letter Bible. I don't know if I could do this. Let's see. No, I'm not going to mess with it. I'm, I don't want to lose it there. The, uh, the Blue Letter Bible, and I, I have a screenshot of it. Let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, okay. Um, the screenshot shows on the bottom left there, you'll see interlinear. So that's a word-for-word -word of whatever the Greek or the Hebrew is, and then it'll take you to other places where that word's being used. Bibles, that's just the different translations, so you're able to click on that. And it'll give you that verse in all the different translations available. Uh, Cross-references, just like we said before, showing you other places where that particular word or phrase is prevalent or maybe related to. Commentaries are available, dictionaries. And then the miscellaneous is um, maps and charts and, and things like that. So I, I, I really like uh, the Bible Hub also and the Study Light. They're good any one of those, but I just prefer that. Tim is a big fan of the Accordance app. 
Um, I think the initial package is free, but you only get a limited amount. And then to actually start developing into some of the wide range of what's available, you start having to pay for it, which is a great investment. But if you're thinking about doing that and you're just not sure it's going to be something you like, there's Logos also. I would recommend starting with one of these, maybe the Blue Letter Bible, and start using that to just see how you are, if this is something that you want to pursue before you go and start purchasing some of the, the other ones out there. So that's, uh, I think, um, that's all we got. That's the end in Hebrew, Greek, and, uh, and English. So any uh, questions or any comments, anything talk about? Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to say, um, you said, what's the best Bible, the one that you'll read? Um, we, we distinguish between eye reading and ear reading in our house because we have a son So that was a personal holdup of mine was he needs to read the Bible for himself, but reading is such a struggle for him. He does not do it voluntarily. In all his schoolwork, he does an audio course. So we, we made the investment to purchase him a really good audio version because I thought whatever he's going to read, whether by ear or by eye. Great. Hearing things can just make all the difference. That's so right. I, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Um, I mentioned the Bible Project. Their bread and butter, I think, has been their videos, these five and six minute videos that are really good. But they started having these discussions between themselves on how they're going to craft this uh, video. And Tim and John, they'll start talking, and that becomes this hour-long podcast. And I'll be out mowing the lawn, working in the yard. As long as it's not something I really have to think too much about while I'm working, I can focus on what they're saying. And you're right. The ear can pick up things that you may not otherwise catch if you're reading it. So anything else? Yes, sir. Farm uh, line, Uh-huh. And read the long talk and underneath the uh, English translation word for uh, Yeah, that's that's I've used that's great. Bible Gateway is one of them on the list, yes. Jennifer. For adults and children, you mentioned, I think you referenced it, but the, or maybe it was in the sermon, but the Bible project is just fantastic yeah. as far as unlocking things and connecting <clears throat> things and there's Bible studies too. They, they, they do. They do. The, the Bible project is, I, I jokingly say, and I said the last few years, the three biggest influences me, on me as far as individuals have been Tim Mackey, Tim Keller, and Tim Henderson. So my, the Tim trifecta, if, if you listen to those three, you're getting a lot of good Timisms and a lot of good uh, meaty substance to it. So... I think we're probably getting to the point where we probably call it. Uh, thanks so much. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we just uh, praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word and that we live in a time and place where it's available. Help us to be faithful servants and uh, witnesses for you and uh, make the uh, Bible a daily part of our lives. We love you in Jesus' name.